Section 12 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 13. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 13. Section number 12. Selected Excerpts by Jonathan Edwards. From Narrative of His Religious History. From about that time I began to have a new kind of apprehensions and ideas of Christ, and the work of redemption, and the glorious way of salvation by him. An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart, and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. And my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of his person, and on the loving way of salvation by free grace in him. Not long after I first began to experience these things, I gave an account to my father of some things that had passed in my mind. I was pretty much affected by the discourse we had together, and when the discourse was ended, I walked abroad alone, in a solitary place in my father's pasture, for contemplation. And as I was walking there, and looking up to the sky and clouds, there came unto my mind so sweet a sense of the glorious majesty and grace of God as I know not how to express. I seemed to see them both in a sweet conjunction, majesty and meekness joined together. It was a sweet and gentle and holy majesty, and also a majestic meekness, an awful sweetness, a high and great and holy gentleness. After this my sense of divine things gradually increased and became more and more lively, and had more of that inward sweetness. The appearance of everything was altered. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm, sweet cast, or appearance of divine glory, in almost everything. God's excellency, his wisdom, his purity and love, seemed to appear in everything, in the sun, moon, and stars, in the clouds and blue sky, in the grass, flowers, trees, in the water and all nature, which used greatly to fix my mind. I often used to sit and view the moon for a long time, and in the day spent much time in viewing the clouds and the sky, to behold the sweet glory of God in these things, in the meantime singing forth with a low voice my contemplations of the Creator and Redeemer. And scarce anything among all the works of nature was so sweet to me as thunder and lightning. Formerly nothing had been so terrible to me. Before, I used to be uncommonly terrified with thunder, and to be struck with terror when I saw a thunderstorm rising, but now, on the contrary, it rejoiced me. I felt God, if I may so speak, at the first appearance of a thunderstorm, and used to take the opportunity at such times to fix myself in order to view the clouds and see the lightnings play, and hear the majestic and awful voice of God's thunder, which oftentimes was exceedingly entertaining, leading me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God." While thus engaged, it always seemed natural for me to sing or chant forth my meditations, or to speak my thoughts and soliloquies with a singing voice. My sense of divine things seemed gradually to increase till I went to preach at New York, which was about a year and a half after they began, and while I was there I felt them very sensibly, in a much higher degree than I had done before. My longings after God and His holiness were much increased." 
holiness, as I wrote down some of my contemplations on it, appeared to me to be of a sweet, pleasant, charming, serene, calm nature, which brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and ravishment to the soul. In other words, that it made the soul like a field or garden of God, with all manner of pleasant flowers, enjoying a sweet calm and the gently vivifying beams of the sun. The soul of a true Christian, as I then wrote my meditations, appeared like such a little white flower as we see in the spring of the year, low and humble on the ground, opening its blossom to receive the pleasant beams of the sun's glory, rejoicing, as it were, in a calm rapture, diffusing around a sweet fragrancy, standing peacefully and lovingly in the midst of other flowers round about, all in like manner opening their blossoms to drink in the light of the sun. There was no part of creature holiness that I had so great a sense of its loveliness as humility, brokenness of heart, and poverty of spirit. And there was nothing that I so earnestly longed for. My heart panted after this, to lie low before God as in the dust, that I might be nothing, and that God might be all, and that I might become as a little child. Resolutions Resolved Never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God, nor be nor suffer it, if I can possibly avoid it. Resolved To live with all my might while I do live. Resolved When I think of any theorem in divinity to be solved, immediately to do what I can towards solving it, if circumstances do not hinder. Resolved to endeavor to my utmost to deny whatever is not most agreeable to a good and universally sweet and benevolent, quiet, peaceable, contented, and easy, compassionate and generous, humble and meek, submissive and obliging, diligent and industrious, charitable and even, patient, moderate, forgiving, and sincere temper, and to do at all times what such a temper would lead me to, and to examine strictly at the end of every week whether I have so done. On the supposition that there was never to be but one individual in the world, at any one time, who was properly a complete Christian, in all respects of a right stamp, having Christianity always shining in its true luster, and appearing excellent and lovely from whatever part and under whatever character viewed, resolved to act just as I would do if I strive with all my might to be that one who should live in my time. I observe that old men seldom have any advantage of new discoveries because they are beside the way of thinking to which they have been so long used. Resolved, if I ever live to years, that I will be impartial to hear the reasons of all pretended discoveries and receive them if rational, how long soever I have been used to any other way of thinking. My time is so short that I have not time to perfect myself in all studies, wherefore resolved to omit and put off all but the most important and needful studies. Written on a blank leaf in 1723. They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that great being who made and rules the world, and that there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible, comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight, and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him, 
that she expects after a while to be received up where he is, to be raised up out of the world and caught up into heaven, being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. There she is to dwell with him, and to be ravished with his love and delight for ever. Therefore, if you present all the world before her, with the richest of its treasures, she disregards it and cares nothing for it, and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has a strange sweetness in her mind, and singular purity in her affections, is most just and conscientious in all her conduct, and you could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world, lest she should offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after this great God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly, and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure, and no one knows for what. She loves to be alone, walking in the fields and groves, and seems to have some one invisible always conversing with her. The Idea of Nothing from Of Being A state of absolute nothing is a state of absolute contradiction. Absolute nothing is the aggregate of all the absurd contradictions in the world, a state wherein there is neither body nor spirit nor space, neither empty space nor full space, neither little nor great, narrow nor broad, neither infinitely great space nor finite space, nor a mathematical point, neither up nor down, neither north nor south. I do not mean as it is with respect to the body of the earth or some other great body, but no contrary point nor positions or directions. No such thing as here or there, this way or that way, or only one way. When we go about to form the idea of perfect nothing, we must shut out all these things. We must shut out of our minds both space that has something in it and space that has nothing in it. We must not allow ourselves to think of the least part of space, never so small. Nor must we suffer our thoughts to take sanctuary in a mathematical point. When we go to expel body out of our thoughts, we must cease not to leave empty space in the room of it. And when we go to expel emptiness from our thoughts, we must not think to squeeze it out by anything close, hard, and solid, but we must think of the same that the sleeping rocks can dream of, and not till then shall we get a complete idea of nothing. The notion of action and agency entertained by Mr. Chubb and others. From the Inquiry into the Freedom of the Will, Part 4, Section 2. So that according to their notion of the act, considered with regard to its consequences, these following things are all essential to it, viz. That it should be necessary and not necessary, that it should be from a cause and no cause, that it should be the fruit of choice and design and not the fruit of choice and design, that it should be the beginning of motion or exertion and yet consequent on previous exertion, that it should be before it is, that it should spring immediately out of indifference and equilibrium and yet be the effect of preponderation, that it should be self-originated and also have its original from something else that it is what the mind causes itself of its own will and can produce or prevent according to its choice or pleasure, and yet what the mind has no power to prevent, precluding all previous choice in the affair. So that an act, according to their metaphysical notion of it, is something of which there is no idea. 
if some learned philosopher who has been abroad, in giving an account of the curious observations he had made in his travels, should say that he had been in Tierra de Fuego, and there seen an animal, which he calls by a certain name, that begat and brought forth itself, and yet had a sire and dam distinct from itself, that it had an appetite and was hungry, before it had a being, that his master, who led him and governed him at his pleasure, was always governed by him and driven by him where he pleased, that when he moved he always took a step before the first step, that when he went with his head first he had always went tail foremost, and this though he had neither head nor tail, it would be no impudence at all to tell such a traveller, though a learned man, that he himself had no idea of such an animal as he gave an account of, and never had, nor ever would have. Excellency of Christ When we behold a beautiful body, a lovely proportion and beautiful harmony of features, delightful airs of countenance and voice, and sweet motions and gestures, we are charmed with it, not under the notion of a corporal, but a mental beauty. For if there could be a statue that should have exactly the same, that could be made to have the same sounds and the same motions precisely, we should not be so delighted with it, we should not fall entirely in love with the image, if we knew certainly that it had no perception or understanding. The reason is, we are apt to look upon this agreeableness, those airs, to be emanations of perfections of the mind, and immediate effects of internal purity and sweetness. Especially it is so when we love the person for the airs of voice, countenance, and gesture, which have much greater power upon us than barely colors and proportions of dimensions. And it is certainly because there is an analogy between such a countenance and such airs and those excellencies of the mind, a sort of I know not what in them that is agreeable, and does consent with such mental perfections, so that we cannot think of such habitudes of mind without having an idea of them at the same time, nor can it be only from custom, for the same dispositions and actings of mind naturally beget such kind of airs of countenance and gesture, otherwise they never would have come into custom. I speak not here of the ceremonies of conversation and behavior, but of those simple and natural motions and airs. So it appears, because the same habitudes and actings of mind do beget airs and movements in general, the same amongst all nations, in all ages. And there is really likewise an analogy or consent between the beauty of the skies, trees, fields, flowers, etc., and spiritual excellencies, though the agreement be more hid and require a more discerning, feeling mind to perceive it than the other. Those have their airs, too, as well as the body and countenance of man, which have a strange kind of agreement with such mental beauties. This makes it natural in such frames of mind to think of them and fancy ourselves in the midst of them. Thus there seems to be love and complacency in flowers and bespangled meadows. This makes lovers so much delight in them. So there is a rejoicing in the green trees and fields, and majesty in thunder beyond all other noises whatever. Now, we have shown that the Son of God created the world for this very end, to communicate himself in an image of his own excellency. He communicates himself, properly, only to spirits, and they only are capable of being proper images of his excellency, for they only are properly beings, as we have shown. Yet he communicates a sort of a shadow, a glimpse, of his excellencies to bodies, which, as we have shown, are but the shadows of beings, and not real beings. 
He who by his immediate influence gives being every moment, and by his spirit actuates the world, because he inclines to communicate himself and his excellencies, does doubtless communicate his excellency to bodies, as far as there is any consent or analogy. And the beauty of face and sweet airs in men are not always the effect of the corresponding excellencies of the mind. Yet beauties of nature are really emanations or shadows of the excellencies of the Son of God. So that when we are delighted with flowery meadows and gentle breezes of wind, we may consider that we see only the emanations of the sweet benevolence of Jesus Christ. When we behold the fragrant rose and lily, we see this love and purity. So the green trees and fields and singing of birds are the emanations of his infinite joy and benignity. The easiness and naturalness of trees and vines are shadows of his beauty and loveliness. The crystal rivers and murmuring streams are the footsteps of his favor, grace, and beauty. When we behold the light and brightness of the sun, the golden edges of an evening cloud, or the beauteous bow, we behold the adumbrations of his glory and goodness, and in the blue sky of his mildness and gentleness. There are so many things wherein we may behold his awful majesty, in the sun in his strength, in comets, in thunder, in the hovering thunderclouds, in ragged rocks and the brows of mountains. That beauteous light with which the world is filled in a clear day is a lovely shadow of his spotless holiness and happiness and delight in communicating himself. And doubtless this is a reason that Christ is so often compared to the things and called by their names, as the Son of Righteousness, the Morning Star, the Rose of Sharon, the Lily of the Valley, the Apple Tree amongst the trees of the wood, a bundle of myrrh, a roe, or a young heart. By this we may discover the beauty of many of these metaphors and similes, which to an unphilosophical person does seem so uncouth. In like manner, when we behold the beauty of man's body in its perfection, we still see like emanations of Christ's divine perfections, although they do not always flow from the mental excellencies of the person that has them. But we see far the most proper image of the beauty of Christ when we see beauty in the human soul. Corollary 1. From hence it is evident that man is in a fallen state, and that he has naturally scarcely anything of those sweet graces which are an image of those which are in Christ. For no doubt, seeing that other creatures have an image of them according to their capacity, so all the rational and intelligent parts of the world once had according to theirs. Corollary 2. There will be a future state wherein man will have them according to his capacity. How great a happiness it will be in heaven for the saints to enjoy the society of each other, since one may see so much of the loveliness of Christ in those things which are only shadows of beings. With what joy are philosophers filled in beholding the aspectable world! How sweet will it be to behold the proper image and communications of Christ's excellency in intelligent beings, having so much of the beauty of Christ upon them as Christians shall have in heaven. What beautiful and fragrant flowers will those be, reflecting all the sweetnesses of the Son of God? How will Christ delight to walk in this garden among those beds of spices, to feed in the gardens, and to gather lilies? The Essence of True Virtue From The Nature of True Virtue, Chapters 1 and 2 True virtue most essentially consists in benevolence to being in general, or, perhaps, to speak more accurately, 
It is that consent, propensity, and union of heart to being in general, which is immediately exercised in a general goodwill. A benevolent propensity of heart of being in general, and a temper or disposition to love God supremely, are in effect the same thing. However, every particular exercise of love to a creature may not sensibly arise from any exercise of love to God, or an explicit consideration of any similitude, conformity, union, or relation to God in the creature beloved. The most proper evidence of love to a created being, arising from that temper of mind wherein consists a supreme propensity of heart to God, seems to be the agreeableness of the kind and degree of our love to God's end in our creation, and in the creation of all things, and the coincidence of the exercises of our love, in their manner, order, and measure, with the manner in which God himself exercises love to the creature in the creation and government of the world, and the way in which God, as the first cause and supreme disposer of all things, has respect to the creature's happiness in subordination to himself as his own supreme end. For the true virtue of created beings is doubtless their highest excellency and their true goodness. But the true goodness of a thing must be its agreeableness to its end, or its fitness to answer the design for which it was made. Therefore, they are good moral agents whose temper of mind or propensity of heart is agreeable to the end for which God made moral agents. A truly virtuous mind, above all things, seeks the glory of God. This consists in the expression of God's perfections in their proper effects, the manifestation of God's glory to created understandings, the communication of the infinite fullness of God to the creature, the creature's highest esteem of God, love to and joy in him, and in the proper exercises and expressions of these. And so far as virtuous mind exercises true virtue and benevolence to created beings, it chiefly seeks the good of the creature, consisting in its knowledge or view of God's glory and beauty, its union with God, uniformity and love to him, and joy in him. And that disposition of heart, that consent, union, or propensity of mind to be in general which appears chiefly in such exercises, is virtue, truly so called, or, in other words, true grace and real holiness. And no other disposition or affection but this is of the nature of virtue. End of section 12